This is the waves. 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 Welcome to the Waves Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and reunions. Hey, if it's good enough for Sex and the City, or the L word for that matter, it's good enough for us. I'm June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of Slate Podcasts. This week, we have a Christmaka miracle. For one week only, we've reassembled the first wave of Waves podcast hosts. So I'm joined by Hannah Rosen, who runs New York Magazine's podcast. Hey, Hannah. Hi. And Noreen Malone, who is an editor-at-large at Slate. Hi, Noreen. Hi, June. It's so nice to hear your voice. Hannah and Noreen have different job titles since the last time we recorded an episode together, way back in June 2019. So give me the lowdown. What have you each been up to? I changed a lot about my life. So I was a, the editorial director of New York Magazine, and I left that job to go work on the Slow Burn podcast at Slate, season five, on the lead up to the Iraq War. And then I, like a week after Slow Burn ended, I had a baby. Um, I got engaged and got married and had a baby all all since I left uh, doing this podcast regularly. So my life looks totally different. <laughs> no kidding. It's hard to imagine more changes. Well, <laughs> Hannah, is it hard to imagine more changes? <laughs> oh, my God. It's so weird. I feel like everything Noreen said, I just did the opposite. It's like single white female. I was like... <laughs> I pushed Noreen out of her New York Magazine job so secretly so that I could go work at New York Magazine. And and I made her get married so I could get divorced. And so all my children could leave the house. It's literally like the cycle. The cycle completes. Yeah. It is really weird. Anyway, can I sit in your seat when I go into New York Magazine? I don't even know where your seat is. Oh, I had an office and I miss having an office. That was so nice. You should steal my office. Yeah, I'm totally going to occupy it. It's going to be so weird. And I'll sit with the lights out, you know. (laughs) Just for the record, I have absolutely no changes because I'm one of those people who's incredibly change resistant, also known as boring. Not only do I still have cable, I still have TiVo. So, you know, like I never, never make any changes to my life. So everything is exactly the same for me. You know, it's so funny, June. I, I feel like the more I go through life, the more I envy, like the more I want to be like a person who has fear changes. Like I just admire, it's like there's something so meditate. I'm, I'm just completely being patronizing here, but there's something just so like meditative about, it's true. It's like the, the sort of monks who kind of tend in a circle. It's like a beautiful way to be, you know, and I envy it. Yeah. I haven't been called a monk before, but I I take it as a compliment. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, we'll be chewing over questions, including some from listeners. Thank you so much for listening. I wanted to take a second and welcome all of our new listeners. And our old ones, too. We haven't forgotten about you. If you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're there, check out our other episodes, too. Like last week's about the Glenn Maxwell trial.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Did you miss the waves, you guys? I mean, making a podcast on a regular schedule is a lot of work, especially if, as with you guys, you had really demanding day jobs that you were also juggling. It was a lot of things to watch and read and think about. Do you miss that? I do. It forced me to not just read the news passively and say, oh, this person should write about this, but to think about what I actually thought and to form and and to just pay attention. Like, is this something for us? And also, I miss having the deadline to consume culture. Now I'll just like sit and scroll on my phone or whatever. And like if I miss whatever TV show came out, it's not a big deal. But before I had to watch it, I knew I had to come up with something good for a recommendation. So I would sort of maybe seek out more books or new movies than I did before. So so in that way, I think I'm I'm a little bit less interesting of a person for not doing the waves. What about you, Hannah? Totally. I mean, it's more that I feel that part of myself has gone dormant, which is the part that works out ideas out loud, which honestly is much harder to do now. It's a little bit, people don't speak off the cuff anymore. I mean, what what comedians complain about has happened to the rest of us. I don't think it's that easy to work out ideas, particularly about things like feminism out loud. But I do miss doing that. I feel like I don't really have settled ideas about a lot of things. Like I kind of have to work them out through people um, and not just in my own head. And I don't really have a chance to do that anymore. I also have missed that. And I guess as Joni Mitchell said, you don't really, you don't know until it's gone. And that was something that I was a late realization for me, but I miss it too. Was there a moment or a news development, a piece of culture, whatever it was, a viral magazine article, perhaps, when you really, really miss being on the waves where you just was like, oh man, this would be a great topic. I Well, I'm wondering now if you're prompting me to talk about Bad Art Friend, which yes, of course, I would have <laughs> loved to talk about with you guys. But I actually sat down and made a list last night, which is by no means comprehensive. This is just what came into my head. And there were so many things. I, I actually like had this moment of, did we really talk about none of this together? Because I have these phantom memories of talking about these things. But Amy Coney Barrett, I would have loved to talk about with you guys. We didn't even talk about Kamala as the vice president, right? Because we'd stopped by then. Joe Biden, you know, like older white guy beating out this whole diverse field. Uh, COVID, I would have loved to talk about the fights over school openings. I would have loved to talk about the childcare crisis that's happened as a result of COVID, which I have experienced in my own life now. But the big sort of maybe not so fun thing to talk about, but to me, the biggest story that we've missed is so many women leaving the workforce in the last two years as a result of COVID. Just That just feels like everything has been rolled back. Like, I feel like we left not on a totally high note because Donald Trump had, you know, was in office, but, you know, Me Too was happening. It felt like feminism was in control and that certainly does not feel the way that way now. Yeah, it's so true. If you project forward, there's Roe v. Wade. I mean, if we were still doing the show now, it's like we would actually have to be seriously considering the idea that certain states would outlaw abortion. Like that's a real 
thing. And that therefore lots of other things are up for grabs, like freaking birth control and, you know, um, same-sex marriage and all this stuff that like, who would have even thought we would ever have to talk about that kind of thing? It's absurd. And, you know, it just feels like it's a cultural revolution, like we're about to split into two countries. And then just to not be totally bleak, there's the cultural stuff. In my head, I call it a queer revolution. It's not quite that, but like, I just feel in such a short amount of time. I was out with some youth as in around 20 last night. And I was like, what percent of the people who you go to college with or went to high school with call themselves queer? Like, is it over 50%? And it's over 50%. And that is like really, really, really happened fast and is really different. But that I think about a lot too. And I'm really glad that you guys were able to come up with this specific list. Like my mind was just blank. Like, well, we didn't do it. It didn't happen. And I should also say that the waves uh, which returned earlier this year has addressed many of these topics. You know, one of the things that came to my mind was Andrew Cuomo and kind of guys in power still doing terrible things and getting caught. But it's kind of depressing that men haven't gotten better, that people in power haven't figured out that they need to uh, get their acts together. I still feel this kind of overwhelming wave of disgust with with like the way people behave in power. And actually not just men, Kristen Cinema drives me up the wall too. Uh, also another person that we've talked about on the waves. I'm just kind of feeling a bit sick of this, what feels like an endless cycle. One thing on Andrew Cuomo is I actually found that to be a sort of undepressing story because he really went down. He took Chris Cuomo with him and I just had a fantasy of interviewing Mama Cuomo for for the waves. Like, wouldn't that have been a great episode? That's <laughs> a genius idea. <laughs> that would have been amazing. And maybe it's not too late. What about the other side of the question? Have there been any issues in the news that you were glad you didn't have to opine on? Donald Trump. <laughs> I'm yeah. so sick yeah. of opining on Donald Trump. Yeah, and I was like Trump 2024, like I don't want to I don't want to have to think about that, you know? I don't want to go there. It's been a pretty eventful two and a half years uh, since we last recorded an episode. Have your views on feminism changed over that period? What about you, Noreen? Well, I guess that my views have not necessarily changed in substance, but maybe in degree. Maternity leave is something we've talked about so many times on this show as being so important for sort of changing the status of women in the workplace and just making it easier to have a family. I, you know, came back from maternity leave two weeks ago. I feel that really strongly in my own life. I also feel much more strongly about the importance of paternity leave as a way of setting up marriages or, or partnerships to not have one partner just be the automatic person who knows about how to take care of the kids like that to me feels I know that feels like okay let's let's actually get maternity leave first and then deal with that second level problem but that to me just seems more vital um and then I guess one thing that has maybe shifted in the way I'm thinking about politics, but also feminism is I've kind of come around to the view that we don't need everyone to be talking in the language of feminism. You know, the political view that that it is better to maybe do a little bit less talking in in activist language if it means winning over more people to um, 
to the side that I happen to think would make things for, more feminist. So I don't I don't know if that makes me less feminist, uh, but that is something that I certainly have been thinking about with respect to my feminism is that like maybe talking about it all the time isn't always getting me and us where we want to go. I, I just want to shout out the episode of The Waves that you did. I believe it went out on the 2nd of December, uh, was a conversation you had with Alicia Montgomery about Kamala Harris. And I really felt that pull, uh, you know, that sort of tension of it being like, trying to be a realist, trying to make compromises, trying to make things happen, as opposed to like, I just want to vote for someone who doesn't make me feel totally compromised and who I kind of hate. Like, I really want that. But at the same time, we need more Democrats in Congress. I think we can have both. I don't know, at least for the presidential. I think there is a way to find someone who doesn't make you feel totally compromised. I don't know. Hannah, what about you? Wait, wait, can you explain a little bit what you mean about compromises? Well, I... I guess it's like, it's a version, although I would say I differ in in some respects, it's a version of what like David Shore and Jonathan Chait are arguing, right? That like, in some ways, what Joe Biden has been doing, which is, you know, speak in plain English, think about what the sort of more moderate base of the Democratic Party is actually comfortable with, as a way of just dealing with the electoral realities, rather than, you know, having someone like Elizabeth Warren going out and um, speaking in language that we would get really excited about on the waves, but maybe isn't connecting with voters. Wow, that's an interesting tension. And now I really wish we had our show to (laughs) tease out that tension, because I feel like a younger generation is moving in the exact opposite direction. I mean, the sort of AOC generation is, is, it's not a feminist direction. It really isn't. I don't feel like people talk about feminism that much. They talk about work and work life, not work life balance in the way that you're talking about childcare, just, yeah, just capitalism. Exactly. Just like the role of work in people's lives, which is fairly gender neutral. I don't feel like it's, it's so much a women's issue right now in the way that it's the loudest. It's just the world is falling apart. Our environment is falling apart. Capitalism is killing us. And that's true. If you're a man or a woman, nobody says explicitly that they're talking about class, but it it, it is very class loaded. It's just a different language that's emerging that's extremely uncompromising, although it has very little to do with feminism. And I would say I personally am in a totally, (laughs) in the meantime, I'm having an internal revolution, which is at odds with the language that everybody's speaking in the world, because I feel like the more I go through life, the more I realize how blinded I was for most of my life about gender expectations and the way gender expectations are absolutely crushing. I'm not saying anything new or interesting. I'm just saying that I am new (laughs) to the kind of emotional rage around that. And me too did this a lot to me. Like if I think about all the things I thought were okay or normal or completely acceptable when I was a young person in the workplace that are completely messed up and I just you know, it's just like it was the way of the world. Like, Noreen, I don't think that we should talk about maternity leave. Like, why? I mean, why? Why do we even accept the idea that it is a woman's job in any way, particularly to raise the child once the child is born? I'm asking a sincere question. Like, you're a person who just had a baby. Where's your baby, Noreen? Why are you at work? I'm just kidding. I'm just <laughs> Well, well, that's, I mean, that that's a little bit what I was saying about the paternity leave thing. But 
Yeah. But why I mean, do we even hesitate? Why are we even like why do we even have to tiptoe around that subject? It's parental leave. There are two there's a child and there are two parents. And it's like I can already hear the guilt in your voice. Like it's so it's like it's <laughs> weird. It never changes. And maybe it means that I'm just wrong and it will always be this way. But I do look back and I'm like the way that the world is divided, just it's just like the uh, decks are stacked. They're just stacked. It's like so hard always. And every woman is reinventing the wheel and trying to do it all over again. And maybe the answer is cap- like like address it via capitalism. And so work doesn't become the central thing and, and, and therefore we don't have to face these individual crises. I mean, that's interesting time. because I think a lot, I mean, weirdly, uh, if I think back to the fight for gay marriage, um, which now seems in a way, you know, so cute in many ways, um, you know, how crazy that that was such a fight, you know, that all these people were saying this will destroy him. It did nothing. You know, it did yeah. nothing. Uh, it, of course, it's a complete irrelevance, except if you were denied that right, in which case it was absolutely not an irrelevance. I think I've gone through something a little bit similar. It's not quite the scales falling from my eyes kind of situation that you seem to be kind of describing, Hannah. But I think I've really gotten even more frustrated and aggravated by the difficulty of making change happen. I mean, I think you're right. Like when you talk with younger people, uh, you know, which for me is basically everybody, um, you do see this amazing, like, why are we, you know, climate, for example, like the world, this is such a giant crisis. Why are we not doing anything? Well, there are so many things like that that need addressing. All of this stuff about, you know, family care, healthcare, so many things, especially that have become clear under, you know, during COVID, and nothing is happening. Uh, you know, has Congress pa- has Congress passed any laws whatsoever that have made life better for broad swaths of? For Americans, and I don't think it has. And I, you know, just everything that we see about Congress is just more status quo. And it's well, the so, child I've tax just gotten credit. more. That's the one thing that's uh, not something that's even you know on my radar. And I, I, I don't want to be that person who's just uh, because I think I used to be that way about other things, like about guns um, and about healthcare in this country. Why does nothing change? And I feel like I'm just getting. I'm sick of my own broken record, but I don't see. I don't see I don't see any light. I'm really pessimistic on some stuff like reproductive rights, but I am by nature an optimist, so I I think that there is a possibility that something like childcare and um, you know, whatever is happening with teachers right now who feel unsupported. I just think that COVID has been such a breaking point for some things that it has to get better. Like it truly can't get worse. And it has revealed just how bad the system is. But that is probably Pollyanna-ish of me. But it, it does feel like there is, those are things that are pretty, um, they're, they're, they've become politicized, but they are actually not by nature political. And so I do believe that those things could maybe get fixed a little bit. Yeah, I just feel I don't I don't know that I feel either pessimistic or optimistic. I just feel like things are polarized and so mm-hmm. there are all these cultural like we'll just split into two countries and maybe that's terrible. Um particularly, I mean we'll see what happens with the Supreme Court, but where you have one country which lives under a totally different set of cultures and expectations and sense of progress than the other half of the country. So during the 2020 election, if we can turn our minds back to that, I often thought of something that you said ages ago, Hannah, which was that real progress would come when we could conceive of more than one female candidate for president. Because it feels even now that maybe just inside our heads, but 
we always doing this kind of unofficial primary for the to find the female candidate that we want to get behind. Did that happen in 2020, do you think? And have we got any better at responding to female candidates, to women? As you're talking, I'm thinking we ha- we have gotten rid of that in other realms. It's not like there's the token female on SNL. Like, I feel like with tokening, we, we are getting better at it in so many cultural realms. There isn't space for, like, the one sidekick character in X TV show, you know, like people have pushed beyond it in lots of other realms. So why can't we push beyond it in politics? You know, um, what do you think, Noreen? Do you think that, um, that we're, we're over it? You know, if Kamala ran, like, are we over it? Uh, I think politics is different because the electoral map is rigged. Right. And it's, it's people get to vote. Um, and also, yeah, people maybe are less upset when there's a woman on SNL than they are when there's a woman potentially telling the whole country what to do. I mean, I feel like 2020 actually made things worse because, you know, there was this whole slate of women. So Hillary had failed and then all of the women failed by sort of doing, you could argue, I don't know if I'm actually going to argue it, but you could argue that they took the wrong lessons from the the Hillary loss um and sort of spent a lot of time pointing out sexism in a way that people didn't really like and now people are like oh women can't win like i feel like we just are back in a place that instead of this possibility where it's like yeah it could be any woman like not a big deal it could be you know it could be kamala just as well as it could be people to judge even though neither of them you know really got that much traction in 20 but like i feel like the sort of person who thinks about electability when they cast their ballot is now thinking even more, oh, like, I would vote for a woman, but I just think that other guy wouldn't do it, you know? What about this? Okay, as you're talking, here's a theory. Here's a possibility, hopeful possibility. What if it just has to pass through embarrassing phases? So Hillary runs once, and it passes through the embarrassing phase where people talk about her ironing or whether she's qualified. And then the last time around, we passed through the phase. This is all retrograde, but this is America. So we passed through the phase last time where everybody had to talk about being a woman. Like they had to surface that and it was too much and people didn't want to hear it. And now the lessons learned from a woman running for office is that she shouldn't talk about that at all. Like it's, she doesn't have to keep surfacing. I'm a woman and sexism and feminism, you just run. Yeah. I mean, although that's a little depressing too, because some of some of that identity shapes policy, you hope, right? So hopefully this is not the final stage that you're describing, right? But in the Noreen's realpolitik of like, we don't have to talk about everything all the time. Like we're trying to be, you know, we're trying to be compromising and palatable. So maybe somebody goes at it by being compromising and palatable. Maybe. I don't know. The thing, you can see where my head <laughs> That's is. That's a great campaign slogan. <laughs> Well, I keep thinking palatable for America. (laughs) I think that's what she's trying to do. Um, Yeah, I keep thinking we're we're like sleep training this week. So I keep thinking about the extinction burst in sleep training, which is that before you actually get the baby to go to bed right away, you just like cries, 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 cries horribly. And maybe we're in the extinction burst, right? Like maybe it it's going to be much, much worse. And then all of a sudden it'll be fixed, right? (laughs) Right, <laughs> Noreen. Gonna- I just want to. I want to tell you, you know, that phase killed me with my first child. I'm just. I'm. Br- I'm. Br- I'm. T- I'm giving you my heart here. It's just. It's I. Horrible. I feel, I'm sorry that you have to. It's listen to that. It is extremely bad. Just put like you know. I think we might fail. I think we might. <laughs> I think we 
I might just not succeed at that. But that's another conversation for another time. Yeah, it's. I remember. I have a great vision of myself kind of weeping oh. on the outside of the door by the crib, like thinking it was the worst tragedy. It's very hard. Anyway, my heart goes out to you. It's a difficult phase that extinction burst, as you call it. I can't Which believe is maybe they, the phase the whole earth is in. The they call it that. Burst. Can you believe that? It's full extinction is what they call it. Anyway. <laughs> That's not helpful. No. It's not. All right. We're going to take a break here, but we'll be back with some questions about culture. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to The Waves wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to hear more from June, Noreen, and me, check out our Waves Plus segment, where today we'll be asking, are the holidays sexist? <laughs> are they? They totally are. So I know for sure that if we'd been recording together this year, we'd have talked about what's been called the Great Resignation. You referred to it earlier, Noreen. Um, this post-pandemic phenomenon of millions of people quitting work, and apparently more women than men are doing that. Does this feel like a real phenomenon to you, and what should we make of it? Noreen, what do you think of this? Well, I think it's definitely a real phenomenon. I've been reporting a little story and talked to two women just this week who quit their jobs because, uh, you know, they were taking care of kids or they, you know, had moved during the pandemic to, for it to be easier to be in their house with their children and they couldn't go remote. I feel like it's being framed in a bunch of different ways in the media. There's the sort of, you know, uh, labor shortage, people have more choice thing. There's the great burnout resignation. And then there is women who I don't think are making like a super excited, empowered choice to leave the workforce. Um, that has me pretty depressed because I think it has really long running ramifications. Again, you have to piece apart the different parts of it. There's straight on just unbelievable that women were knocked back to the 80s level of workforce participation and the fact that it happened in September, <laughs> which is so obvious because that's when kids go to school. So there was really no other way to explain that except we haven't made much progress on this idea that women, and New York Magazine did a whole, you know, they interviewed lots of women about it. It was just a million small, tiny domestic decisions which add up to the woman stays home. And so that felt depressing. That felt like, oh, we haven't really made that much progress on that front in these small intimate ways because the way people make decisions is really deeply influenced by these gender expectations and stereotypes. It should have, in my mind, landed 50-50. Like sometimes it makes sense for the guy to stay home and sometimes for the women to stay home because these are school-age children, not babies. So, you know, anybody can help them with the Zoom lessons. Well, I was just going to ask, as a person who wrote The End of Men, which I know you sort of hate having brought, brought up in circumstances mm -hmm. like this, but I'm curious if you feel like this is a little bit of an end of women moment. Like, does, does it feel like a really sharp reversal of what you were writing about yes. a decade ago? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 I felt exactly that. I felt when I read the exact numbers around women leaving the workforce that September, that all the progress I had described in that book was extremely tenuous. And I felt like I was this kind of cheerleader person, like cheering on, cheering on. And then, but it was all like stitched together without any structural support or any societal support. So as soon as something hits, it can all just fall apart. 
you know, like all of that progress, that it can be wiped away in a month because it's the first month that school starts. That's crazy. Yeah, that was extremely depressing to me, that moment when that happened in the pandemic. And, you know, there's all this sort of long-term tragedies that happen. Like if you look at black women's workforce participation, they have much higher rates of workforce participation than white women in general, but also a way higher workforce disruption. So it's this, you know, it's this like quicksand problem where like workforce participation does not give you all the data that you need because if you have workforce participation but you can't lay down roots, then you then you're just kind of treading water and you can't really make progress. So so that's what that all looked like that pandemic moment. However, the the sort of younger privileged people choosing not to work or to the extent that people are uh, revolting against a certain kind of job you know, it's probably not leaving them in a great circumstance. People need money. America's expensive. But there's something at least willful in that. At least it's not happening to you. There's a little bit of choice in that. Yeah, I, I, that's actually an area where I see a little bit of hope in this. There may be some people for whom this is about how COVID revealed that their priorities were messed up. They willfully step back a little bit from the the race that they were in, that they decided, I don't want to, don't want to run this race. I want to be over onto the side, uh, you know, that they decided to to deprioritize work and, and money a little bit. But who can do that? You know, it's okay to say, well, now that I can work remotely, I don't have to live in a an expensive city or I can live a bit further out, but you still have to pay healthcare bills. You still have to pay the cost of college if you have kids, because that's, those are things that you almost can't opt out of, or if you do, you're, you're causing other problems. So while I get the urge, I'm not sure that it's realistic for very many people. It seems to be something that only a very few privileged uh, and surely hopefully recognizing their privilege can take advantage of. But uh, I think mostly it's, it's as you've said, a, like a non-voluntary process. A last period to this, Noreen, from a, from a mother further down the road. I, I look back on my maternity leaves with deep gratitude as the times when I did actually get to completely disconnect from work. And I love them for that reason. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed just sort of hanging around, hanging around with the neighborhood moms. I loved it. I haven't had periods like that since. But as you said, June, total privilege because I worked in places and I'd worked there long enough that I had paid maternity leave for longer than, you know, probably 95% of Americans have it. So, yeah, I I had a really nice maternity leave and I'm incredibly great. I think I will be very sentimental about it for a long time. (laughs) Exactly. As I am. I think sex in the city has come up a couple of times in our conversation and whatever that show's weaknesses were, it was a really interesting text about friendship I know that you are both people who are for whom friendships are very important and you have very strong friendships. And I'm curious how they changed over the course of the pandemic. Like we've all been really isolated by the pandemic. We couldn't meet our friends in the ways that we used to, but maybe you found new ways to spend time with your friends. How has it been for you, Noreen? Yeah, I would say that the friendships where there is an active group chat have been the ones that have really thrived. Um, and that's been interesting. I, I really do miss the sort of weaker tie friends, right? The people you see at a party, the people you might walk out to lunch with at work, um, that sort of ambient 
stuff I really do miss. You get a lot of fun and gossip and just novelty from that. Um, I mean, it's hard for me because like my life did sort of change. And so some friendships that were like more in that sort of ambient before, like now because, you know, my husband is friends with the woman or the man or, or, you know, they have a baby around the same age, they have become closer. Um, So it's hard for me to separate out like new life phase from horrible global pandemic that left us all, you know, inside and afraid of other people. What about you, Hannah? I remember it was just about the first week of lockdown when our emotional fairy godmother, Esther Perel, was on one of the millions of podcasts that she's always on that I happen to be listening to. And she predicted how our the strain that our intimate relationships would be under because we would be seeing each other all the time and depending on them to do all different things. And they would have to become even more and more varied than they already were in American relationships. And I think that is absolutely true. I mean, that kind of air of of sort of weirdness and isolation that settles around domesticity is like, it's a thing, like you can smell it in the air. It's just, it's just strange, you know, to not have normally in intimate relationships, you like leave and you come back and you leave and you come back. But it's like, we're all living like, like prairie families where we (laughs) see nobody but each other. Those people like died when they were 33, you know? So, (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) I think that for me, what's become clear is that old friendships have either revitalized, like, you know, people who I was friends with in Seattle, who I haven't seen for years, because Zooming with your friends was more of a thing during the pandemic in the early stages, like we've Zoomed a bunch of times, which we should have been doing anyway, but we it just kind of wasn't on the menu. You know, again, I also have a group chat that with people I was at school with who I'd been at, you know, high school, I'd been out of contact with them for decades. And now we are, you know, talking on WhatsApp Every day I saw them. Really? Yeah. I saw them when I went home. I went home a month or so ago and I, we had lunch together again, hadn't seen them for like 40 years. And like my partner and I see each other often for 24 hours a day. Like we, if we go out, we'll go out together. You know, if it's just to the store, like that's the thing The, the people, you know, you're maybe having more intense interactions with, but I really haven't made any new friends. Uh, and that's weird, you know, like as you get older, it's it's a commonplace. It's a cliche that it's harder to make friends. Of course it is. But generally speaking, you're at least in situations where you could make friends with people. And I know there are people who I probably would have been, had closer friendship relationships with, you know, people who I've maybe been on a podcast with, um, who, you know, we clicked. But if you're not going to have any opportunity to go out to a bar or something or to have dinner together, you're probably not going to make that next, you know, you're not going to change from one kind of relationship to another. So it's been hard to make new friendships. It's one of the big changes, I think. I was in the office. I have a new job. So I was in the new office for a significant amount of time this week. And it was intense. It was like uh, exactly what you said. It was like trying to get, you know, people I've seen on Zoom or on many Zoom calls. And so I saw them in person. Even making eye contact was intense. Like I don't actually feel like the same kind of person. It was very different to have casual interactions. I loved it, but it was intense. Like it took a lot out of me just to be in person with a lot of people. Yeah. All right. We used to spend a lot of time talking about movies and TV shows and 
occasionally even books. When we get to the recommendations segment of this episode, we'll talk about something that we're loving right this second. But if you had to pick out one piece of culture that you've loved over the last two and a half years, what would it be? I'm going to start with you, Nuri Malone. This one was so hard for me because I realized I, I have actually consumed so much culture. I've had a really hard time picking it. Um, so I'm just going to say some proper nouns and then I will land on the thing that I actually <laughs> want to talk about. But uh, Lowbrow, I really loved Younger. The podcast that I liked the most was Mary Bond Knight's The Promise. You know, I will argue that The Morning Show was better than other people thought it was. Um, season two even? I loved season two. I don't know. Wow. I don't know what's happened to wow. you guys. But oh my God, if I only think, we could have talked about that. I think it's smarter than people think it is. Um, I like all the obvious things that people like, but but the thing um, that I saw right before lockdown and then in the moment in uh, June 2021 when I'd been vaccinated, I thought things were getting better. I went to see a, a play in person and it was um, Jacqueline Novak's Get On Your Knees, which is like this really intellectual, smart, incredibly funny, goofy, like uh, rigorously structured one woman show about blowjobs, but about so much more. Um, there is, there is an, I think it'll probably come to Netflix or some streaming service sometime soon. So I feel like people should look out for that. Um, but there's a great New York Times magazine article explaining more about it. But if, if you get a chance to watch that, uh, it is so smart. She's a genius. Hannah, what about you? Uh, for me, it was it wasn't that hard because I was thinking of it more like what's actually I've I've seen and watched and read and heard a million amazing things. You know, over the last year and a half, like culture has been our lifesaver in many ways. When we were locked up, and the only way we get to experience like variety and other people's consciousness, and you know, commune with people who are making other things, and so it's been a total lifesaver. But in terms of what has impacted me the most, I would say it was Chloe Zhao you know, both Nomadland and also The Rider and then sort of watching all of her other movies. And I think it's because of the way that she makes movies has shaken up my idea of myself as a journalist, meaning that she has a very different relationship with the subjects that she, you know, it's like half documentary, half fiction. And I feel like the way journalism is practiced is overdue for a kind of reckoning. Like, it's the way that that we as journalists kind of own the story over our subjects and the things and people that we write about. And we've always thought, okay, that's the way that it has to be. Like, I tell the story, you're my subject, I get to decide how your life is portrayed. And Chloe Zhao, and I think documentarians, visual documentarians, not podcasts yet, are playing with that idea and like giving over the story in some weird naturalistic way to the people that they are telling the story about. And it's it's a mix. It's like, you know, Nomadland, there's Frances McDormand, who's an actual actress, and I'm sure there's a script, but there are also these other people who are just kind of doing what they're doing. And there's a, there's a disappearance of her, the director. It, it's just made me think a whole lot about the work that I do and how I do it and the power relationships between me and the people that I write about and and sort of ways that I've done stories in the past. I just feel like it's stuck with me. The method of it has stuck with me for a really, really, really long time. And it's like slowly changing the way I do work. When you talk about that, Hannah, it actually weirdly makes me think about the whole Bon Appetit implosion and the podcast that was made about that. 
which uh, made me think about the relationship of journalism and subjects. Um, but also, I just want to shout that out. It was a piece of culture that I enjoyed, which was the slow form unraveling of Bon Appetit, which might make me a terrible person, but it was gossip when I needed gossip. So, um, But was it the <laughs> podcast you enjoyed because we only heard half of it, or was it the unraveling of Bon Appetit as a cultural phenomenon, or both? More the latter. The podcast is a subset of that, the sort of implosion within the implosion and the you know, all of that. I just, I found it to be incredibly fascinating. I, w- I went really, really deep. That was, that was like a something, that was something that we did in our, in our little house in the prairie as we close read the masthead of Bon Appetit. We like went, we went pretty deep into it. Okay. For me, I'm, I'm like uh, Noreen in that I had to make a list and, and I'll see what, what surfaces as, as the most uh, important. Uh, I really loved season six of Line of Duty. It's kind of a weird end to the story, but I just think that show is so fantastic. I thought the most recent season of Making Gay History, which I believe is season nine, uh, the Eric Marcus's personal story of the AIDS era or the breakthrough of AIDS was amazing. Um, I really loved Natalie Haynes' podcast, Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics, which is about the classics, as in Latin and Greek uh, history and literature, um, Rick Perlstein's history books. Uh, and then a weirdly, I think maybe the thing that stuck with me in the way that that it, it has for you, um, Hannah and, and Chloe Zhao, is I am one of those people, and this has been true for a long time, I'm much more interested in Patricia Highsmith as a person and biographies of her and books where she's a character, novels where she's a character, more than the things that she's actually written. I have actually listened to, uh, on as an audiobook, her recently released diaries and notebooks. But even more than that, I've really enjoyed the reviews um, of that book. And there were some reviews of a apparently terrible biography of Patricia Highsmith called Devil's Lusts and Strange Desires, which Terry Castle absolutely demolished in such an entertaining way in the London Review of Books uh, that I also, I, I haven't read the book yet. I'm not sure I will, but I have loved every single review of it. Oh, I love Terry Castle. Oh my God, so good. I would love to see the data from your uh, TiVo, June, from from. Quarantine. Oh, my God. I miss you so much, June. This is like I, I don't have anybody like this in my life who consumes in quite the way that you do, which is extremely particular. And I just miss knowing about it and like being influenced by it and just, you know, moving my like uh, adapting to it. It's so awesome. Before we head out, let's get to our current recommendations. What are you loving right now? Hannah, let's begin with you. I am reading a book called The Electricity of Every Living Thing by a British writer called Catherine May. I don't know if you know her. She also wrote a book called Wintering. She's like Cheryl Strayed, but like more chill, you know? Like, And this book is about actually being diagnosed as autistic in her 40s and and it's a walking book. It's one of those, you know, discover yourself as you're walking, as your people do, June. And, you know, it's it's a walking culture book. And I just, I just love the way she writes. And there's an amazing passage in it, which taught me a lot where, as a lot of women with autism get diagnosed in their 40s, and she writes about the experience of reading kind of DSM descriptions of autism and not really seeing herself in them. And then she goes and discovers stuff written by autistic 
autistic people, and she makes like a list of diagnoses as they appear from the inside. And that that kind of juxtaposition of those two lists, like how people from this goes back to the Chloe Zhao who gets to tell your story question, as sort of DSM people from the outside make that list of symptoms, and then people from the inside make the list of their experiences of living with autism, and she immediately recognizes herself. That was another powerful juxtaposition where I was like, oh, what a difference if you let the people who are having the experience actually tell the story about themselves, and immediately it's like everything in her relaxes because she can now recognize herself, and I just love her writing. Oh, and June, the last season of Great British Bake Off. June, I'm doing this just to pander to you, but that was just... Amazing. As soon as I saw Christelle, I'm like, she's going all the way because not only does she have a winning personality, but also like if you have a person, a regular member of the public who is that beautiful, they're yes. going to stay to the end. Like I, first episode, I'm like, okay, she's going to be right there to the end. Amazing. Yeah. Who looks like that? And then has like 15 versions of herself called like, what were her sisters? Like Chanel, Christelle and whatever. It's like, anyway. All right. Noreen, what about you? Uh, I have been enjoying the, I think it's Hulu show, Only Murders in the Building. Uh, yes. Which, <laughs> yes. Have you guys been watching this? Yes. Yeah, I love their the way, I love the music of that show, how yeah. they mess with the serial music. It's yeah. so funny. It's so funny. Yeah. So if you're not watching it, it's Steve Martin and Martin Short and Selena Gomez, strangely, who is kind of great and seems to have chemistry with those old guys. And it's weirdly, you know, I'm not a boomer, but I was raised by, by uh, you know, one boomer parent. And, like, so Steve Martin and Martin Short for me are very deeply nostalgic. Like, you know, I, the Three Amigos, all of it. The premise of the show is these people live in an Upper West Side building that is clearly based on a real Upper West Side building. Uh, one, Steve Martin's character was, you know, uh, the detective on a show like Matlock, but he hasn't worked in years. Martin Short's character it was at one time a big time Broadway producer. He had a giant flop that ruined his career, but they still have these apartments. Someone dies in the apartment building. They're obsessed with a podcast that's like Serial. And they and Selena Gomez, their uh, mysterious neighbor and fellow podcast obsessive, decided they are going to make a podcast about the murder in the building. Um, and it is just so just funny. Those guys are funny. They It's sharply observed about what is hilarious about podcast culture. And it's just a little treat at the end of the day. June, what are you going to recommend? I want to rave about the show Yellow Jackets on Showtime. I was on the Culture Gab Fest a few weeks ago. And I'm again, like if I, this is the great, great value of being on podcast. So I watched it to talk about it on that show. And I am so glad I started it. It's such a great, messy show. If I say the plot, it's going to kind of sound terrible. In the 90s, I guess, uh, the championship the state championship girls soccer team was flying out to uh, nationals on the West Coast. Their plane crashes. They're, you know, stuck in the middle of nowhere. You can imagine the hijinks that ensue. Some of them make it back home. And, you know, now in 2021, we we are so far, at least in the episodes that I've seen so far, uh, four of them are, are still alive and, and kind of reckoning with what happened. And really what's amazing about it is is that it's the actresses like Melanie Linsky is just superb. Uh, Christina Ricci is in it. Juliette Lewis, 
Tawny Cypress. Those are the, the four returnees. Like, and they're just so great. And I think just seeing, having the messes that TV shows are about be women's messes. Like, again, it's ridiculous that that's revolutionary, but it's so cool. And the acting is just phenomenal. I love everything about it. It's fantastic. And I, I really encourage people to check it out, despite what you will think when you hear the plot. All right, that's our show for this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Susan Matthews is the editorial director with June Thomas providing oversight and moral support. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content of shows like this one. It's only a dollar for the first month. So to learn more, go to slate.com slash the waves plus. We'd also love to hear from you. So email us at the waves at slate.com. The waves will be back next week with another reunion show. Next week, you'll hear from the other great throwback team of Christina Caltarucci, Marsha Chaplin, and Nicole Perkins. Do not miss that. 